invite you to open your copies of God's Word tonight as we turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, there's one in front of you, and it's found on this passage, is found on page 1028 in those Bibles there in front of you. Page 1028. Be looking at Revelation chapter 2 this evening, starting to look at the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These letters are part of a, the larger vision which starts in chapter 1, verse 12, and goes to the end of chapter 3. These seven churches of Asia Minor faced horrible persecution and struggled with heretical teaching all around. These seven churches represent the church throughout the ages. As we understand apocalyptic literature, that number seven being symbolic of the complete church of Christ, the church of God through the ages. So this these uh, verses have something to say to, to our uh, day and to uh, the church throughout the world. The apocalyptic literature leads us to look to the past for interpretation, to understand what it is that John sees, and that it also gives us understanding for looking forward, helping us to apply what it is uh, our faith has to say to what we will face uh, in days ahead. John Sees. We're going to look just for a few moments at those words there in chapter 1 leading up to chapter 2. John sees one like a son of man. It says there in verse 13, walking amongst the lampstands, speaking to him. Well, this points back for interpretation, gives us insight as we look uh, forward. This description tells us of the true meaning of the one that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where he said, I saw one like the Son of Man given the kingdoms of the world, given everlasting an everlasting kingdom. Well, who was that? Who was that one who stood in given an eternal kingdom in the midst of these other kingdoms? It was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We read that here where we help us, it helps us understand what Daniel was looking forward to. And it's interesting that he is given a kingdom in the midst of all of these other kingdoms, in the midst of all these other powers that seem so lasting, so enduring, and yet he alone has the kingdom which endures forever, for he is the king of kings and lord of lords. The image of the lampstand is important for our understanding of tonight's passage as well. The seven lampstands among which he walks speaks of the, the sevenfold or the perfect light given by the Holy Spirit. It's speaking of the Holy Spirit. It's also speaking of the churches. So we have a, a multi-level understanding to these sim, uh, symbolic uh, words given, to these pictures given. The Holy Spirit is present there among the churches, and they are to be a light to a dark world, as we've just sung. Where the lampstand is present, we know that Jesus Christ is present by his Spirit. He gives light. Only through the Spirit can the church be all that God intends the church to be. Only by the divine empowerment of the Spirit of God can we truly live in the way that God would have us to live and witness as we ought we're going to see things here tonight that remind us that, that we can't, just by sheer determination, uh, live as God would have us live. No, we need to pray daily for God's Spirit to enlighten us, to lead us 
even as we see throughout the New Testament where uh, the writers of the epistles talk about being enlightened in our minds by the Spirit of God for right understanding and for faithful living. Jesus is present here giving praise to his church. He's giving rebuke and exhortation as well to all those who will hear, to all those who will obey. We're reminded of these commandments in light of who we are. This is important for us to remember. It's not that God is saying, well, now here are the commands. If you do these, you will be saved. He says, no, because of who you are, children of God, the light of God in the world, because of who you are, by grace, because of my work in you by the Spirit, now go and live in this way. Live as light, as those who speak truth, the indicative, the imperative, who you are, than how you are to live. It is by grace that we respond to God's command. Again, his spirit working in us to transform us. With those comments in the background, let us look then at the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, And your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So far, the reading of God's own holy word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Under congregation, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that he is receiving from the Lord what is soon to take place. So it is right for us to understand when we come to the book of Revelation that there is a certain aspect of this teaching that is for the present day. It's for that church, those churches in that historic uh, time in that time and in that place the churches of Asia Minor but it also reminds us that we have to look more deeply because we're looking at apocalyptic literature then you come to chapter four and we see quite clearly that John is also receiving vision of what is to come what is what will take place in these last days which are the days between Christ's ascension and his second coming so we see in these words, things that are directly appropriate to the church at Ephesus, and therefore we need to look at the church of Ephesus and to think about what it says to us today. So first, tonight we want to look a bit at, at Ephesus itself. We want to see what was going on in that place in that time. We see that Christ is, first, before we get there, we see that Christ is not an absentee sovereign, He is one who's walking amongst the lampstands. He is one who is present, the one who is aware of the church. And he sends this word to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I don't want to spend a lot of time looking at that, uh, to whom it was written. 
We sang Psalm 103 tonight for a reason. It says, you ministers, you angelic host, bless the Lord, and you servants below, ministers. There is a heavenly reality of those who are singing God's praises. So the letter is to them, the guardian angels, of, as it were, of the churches, as well as to the servants of the church, those who are leading the church. I'll, I won't say more about that. But that's how we understand that word, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words, the words of him who holds the churches in his hand, who walks amongst the spirit-filled churches. What we see is that Ephesus was a place known for great religiosity. If you look back in Acts chapter 19, we have a, and there are other places where we can look, but Acts chapter 19, we see that the city was famous throughout the ancient world to have, for having that temple uh, designated to Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. There was a great trade there for trinkets and, and idols all relating to that particular idolatry. A city known for wealth and power and fame and superstition and idolatry. So what is needed in Ephesus at the time? Well, we can see that it needs strength, it needs discernment, it needs God's grace for perseverance. That, in an immediate sense there in the book of Ephesus, the people need the Lord to guide them for the culture is filled with idolatry and the lure of wealth and the temptation to compromise the truth that they might stay close to the society, that they might continue to be making a living. Acts 19 tells us that in the midst of this city, there was a Christian presence, and there was also, uh, there were sons of Sceva, it says, who had come to try to drive out a demon, and they were, uh, they were not doing so in the name of the Lord, and, the, and they were uh, beat up, and they were sent away, and the people were... Uh, amazed at the fact that the word, the name of Jesus had that power and they turned away from their idols and they sold all of their, their spell books and all of their, their, their black magic books or their books of the magic arts as it reads here in the Greek and they turn away and begin to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. The value of this, these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a significant amount of money. This is no small uh, decision. They had to, to part with that, which had a tremendous value. Luke is telling us, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that this is, a, this is a significant conversion. This is something that cost them something. And as Christianity becomes a real threat in that area, those who are in the sale of idols, along with the temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians, they become troubled by what is taking place. What is this power? What is this teaching that is coming about? How will it affect our livelihood? How will it transform our culture? And they attacked Paul in particular, saying that his teaching had turned people away from the gods, verse 26 of Acts 19. Well, as we know today, if you want to stir up a hornet's nest, bring the truth of God to bear upon an industry that's making millions upon billions of dollars and as the truth comes to bear, if there is any transformation in the way that people look at that industry and in what it offers, they stand to lose a significant amount of money. 
They may hide behind a particular principle. Well, no, we're, 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 withhold, we're upholding rights. But it comes down to money very often. Industries troubled by the truth and how it exposes the lies. Paul spoke the truth, and these idol pushers stirred up a riot. Verses 27 and 28, they're speaking about Paul, how he had persuaded so many people to turn away from Diana, verse 26, then verse 27. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours, they say, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, or Diana, may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, you see the humor in this. They can't even trust that their own goddess will uphold her own honor. They have to fight for her. They have to stand for her because she'll topple over if they are not giving all of their efforts to maintain this cult. There's a need for truth to be spoken into this this idolatrous culture there in Ephesus. And the result is not surprising. There's protest against the truth. I want to make a point about how lies overtake a culture. It happens when the gatekeepers, when the gatekeepers no longer stand for the truth. The result is the next generation doesn't know those truths in the same way and even quickly turn away from those truths or hold them with very little understanding such that when they're challenged, they drop them, they let them them go. It's a body of truth to be confessed. When the church rejects truth to follow emotions, things fall apart almost in the scheme of world history, almost overnight. We see that long history even in the church. We see today liberal churches who've rejected the Bible as authoritative and the essential doctrines of the, of the scriptures. And before long, they reject the scriptures. And they begin to embrace the emotions and the thoughts of the culture because they want to remain relevant, they say. What has been given up over the years? Well, the deity of Christ, the omniscience of God, the importance of Christ as the only way to salvation. These and many more essential doctrines. The next thing that follows is the Bible. The God of the Bible is lost and the Bible itself is lost and we come against creational realities and we reject those as well and follow the culture because of the threats that are given to the church if they don't follow and embrace the movement, the revolution. The Bible becomes myth even in so-called houses of worship. Certainly not houses of worship of God, but those who worship man. And the culture rapidly unravels. When many idols come in, there is no, no longer any standard by which to discern of the church collapses And there's little light left. There's hardly what we could call a lampstand where the light shines brightly. Certainly not in its sevenfold or in its rich and fullest sense by the work of the Spirit. In Ephesus, we don't have the same exact situation. We don't have a church that's long established and is now uh, uh, several generations in. And suddenly the second 
generation is falling away, but we, we do see the importance of the church needing to uphold the truth, to be a gatekeeper of the truth. The church had many leaders. This was a significant church, probably second only to Jerusalem. You had Paul at this church for a time. You had Apollos. You had uh, Priscilla and Aquila. You had Tychicus. You had uh, uh, Timothy there. You had a lot of, of, of well-known teachers. A big church, an influential church. Established in the faith. The head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, praises them for their works. He says in verses 2 and 3, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. They had followed after certain other groups and declared themselves to be apostles. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Guarding the good deposit is so important. Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy, saying, guard that good deposit. He says it, Jude says it in Jude Three, contending for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. There's warning throughout Scripture against following false teachers and not standing against them. And people of the Old Testament were taught not to syncretize in their religion, to take in other teachings. We see what happens soon, don't we, in the Old Testament. What does Elijah, the prophet of God, say to the people? They are syncretizing their worship. They're worshiping Baal, and they have this great confrontation there in First Kings, and we see how easily uh, the results can destroy people. It affected their physical lives, and it also affects uh, spiritual lives as well as their physical lives, leading to immorality. Easy to compromise on teaching that has been long held. Easy to go along with the liberals of the church who want to update biblical teaching to get with the times or to stick with the times. To remain relevant, we say. Often, it is the teachers of the church who are pressing for this. Over the years, we see this even in our own land. Things like openness theology, all that went along with the emergent church. This idea that we're simply on a journey. There's no really uh, absolute truth that we, can, that we can know for sure. We don't really know God in, as he is in himself. And that is true in, in a sense, in his entirety. But he does reveal himself. That's what the scriptures are all about. And what he teaches about himself, we must accept and live by. We can go on about many other teachings, lordship, salvation, debate, and all the rest. When the church embraces these unbiblical positions, it is not long when, before they embrace unbiblical positions in the culture. Looking to some other place for authority thinking that they have another plan, a better plan by which to grow God's church numerically, following after what will, what will grow the church in numbers while missing the fact or ignoring the fact or denying the fact. They're to stand for the truth. And Jesus commends the Ephesian church's rejection of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know too much about their teaching with certainty, but... It seems that they stressed spiritual liberty, liberty to the point of idolatry and immorality. And Jesus commends the church for standing against that, for its discernment and discipline. The leaders of the church were to exercise such discernment, discipline. And the people of God, those in the office of believer, were also to test the spirits, 
those who are seen as uh, noble believers, search the scriptures. What does Paul say about the Berean church? They are more noble because they have searched the scriptures to determine what is being said, whether it is in line with the word or not. A clear teaching of God in this passage is that we are to be discerning. Jesus knows whether we are acting faithfully to the word or not. He sees, he walks among us. But Jesus does have a correction for this church, this hard-working, discerning, truth-loving, lie-hating congregation had lost or had abandoned their first love. Jesus wants his church to be discerning while at the same time not losing that call to love. You remember his, his statement to the Corinthian church. When Paul speaks to the Corinthian church, how God is speaking, he says, you can have all of these wonderful spiritual gifts and, and talk about all of your wonderful gifts, but if you're, you're acting without love, you're simply resounding gong, a clanging cymbal, making noise, but not being used effectively in the church or in the culture. How does this happen? How do we, how do we lose that love? Well, it's very easy. It, it, we, we face a, a, a world that hates the truth and, and really doesn't want to talk to us, really wants to, to stay far away from us or to shout us down. And it's very uh, tempting to just walk away or to attack with the truth and to try to win an argument rather than speak the truth in love that God might show himself powerful to soften even the hardest heart. Jesus predicts that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. We should take note of that. We should remember that. Matthew 24, he says, in these last days, many hardships will come and the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24 He speaks there of how many will be led astray. He says, you will be delivered up to tribulation, put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Matthew 24, verse 12. Jesus warns against that happening. He says, don't let that happen. It's easy for the churches under Roman persecution, as they were in Asia Minor at the time, to become increasingly defensive, suspicious. It's easy for us to do the same. I must say this word hits home to me in our present day, to want to speak the truth and and tell people aren't willing to listen, and then to demonize those that are on the other side of the, the argument, we might say. It hits home. It reminds me that God is not done with me yet in working the heart of Christ. And I trust that you can examine your own heart and see where you are at as this word speaks to you. How is it that we can speak the truth and do so with love? We can feel quite self-justified in pulling back or resisting those around us or demonizing those around us. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't do that with me. Children, are you thankful for that? Jesus doesn't turn back from you when you say things or do things that are not right. Lord Jesus is our example. 
He sets the example for us how we are to live. You see, we can't forget that what God calls us to do is not natural to us. Then we settle in and say, well, I'm doing what I need to do. I, I'm doing what I'm able to do. I'm, I'm, I'm doing all the things that, that I, I think are, are asked of me because it seems to be fairly natural, fairly easy. <laughs> and Jesus says, oh, when you, when you follow me, you take up your cross. You bear suffering. But when you speak the truth and do so in love, you will face adversity even as you do so in love. Do not be surprised, but do not grow cold. When the difficulty of the call is set before us, we're reminded again of how much we need to be forgiven, of how much we need to repent of our coldness, how much we need God to work in us. Listen to what he says in verse 5 there. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, Repent and do the works you did at first. I remember the joy of sharing the gospel door to door when I was a student in Bible college and being surrounded by those who had the same passion. But it's easy as the years pass to lose that that flame, that zeal, and to become hardened and to become cynical and to become just just disinterested in, in the world. Oh, we know our truth, we say. But they ain't getting any. They're not going to have it. They don't deserve it. And yet, Jesus says, watch out for such a cold heart. Repent. Do the works you did at first. That initial zeal that the Lord gives Pray that it might continue to be stoked by the gospel as you see how God loves you in Christ. That he might warm your heart to speak that truth and to do so in love. I was reading an amazing story about that, an encouraging story about that this week as the the gospel grows in, and of all places, Iran. The, The church is growing there. The evangelical church And what is evident in that place at this time, in the midst of severe persecution, is not only desire to speak truth, but to love. The man who's writing the article said this. He says, I I don't hate the Ayatollah. I I have a passion for his salvation. I want to see him saved. And I want to see the whole culture changed. That's, that, that's that, uh, that love that comes in as we understand how God has delivered us from our own sin that we go out and say, you are not going to believe what God did for me. And as we can teach that in a humility, then the love for others grows as we have the heart of Christ. For he has pursued us even as we're called to bring that truth to bear to pursue others. Remember Paul's words to the Ephesian church wrote, uh, written in 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, he says, I will stay in Ephesus, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And then he says these strange words, and there are many adversaries. A wide door has opened, and there are many adversaries. But the adversity doesn't lead him to say, well, 
Close up the tent. I'm out of here. I'm not going to spend any more time here. He says, in fact, I see a wide door open, and adversity just means that I must lean all the more upon the Lord, that I might speak in such a way that God is honored and that the gospel is powerful to save, that it's nothing in me. That I can see even through adversity, God will bring his people, draw his people through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. It's an example for the Ephesian church as he writes this and for us today. In the power of Christ, we press on with the truth and love. There are so many opportunities where we can do that. I I was just hearing one recently, and I I would love to see us send a a work group. Maybe this is a bit of a plug. Uh, There's a a need to build churches in, in Baja, Mexico, and there is, there's a need for, for more workers. Uh, another, an area URC is sending groups down there in January. And what an opportunity to show the love of God in Christ, to provide for those churches that they in turn might show the love of God in Christ Jesus. What an opportunity. Now, before we move on from this, uh, from this uh, particular aspect of this letter there are it must be said there are other commentators who believe that Jesus was declaring when he says that you've abandoned the love you had at first he was declaring uh, that they feel that he was declaring that they had lost love for each other and that happens as well I think it's a I think it's a an application we need to be careful to make to ourselves sometimes we can follow certain teachers and we get really uh, fired up about our doctrine and then we start to divide don't we I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and so forth. But Paul says Christ is not divided. We follow after him. Together, united in Christ. That love that we have for Christ then unites us to each other, as we heard this morning, a true unity in Christ. Well, then lastly tonight, the church is to be a model of daily repentance. Repent. Jesus points to the reality of lost love and then he he gives this command, repent and do the work you did at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the work you did at first. Discern and do so with love. There's a balance, isn't there? There's a balance in our Christian life. We can't say as some do, I'd rather have the right attitude than the right doctrine. We don't want to say that truth doesn't matter, but we also don't want to be on this other side of that and say, when I see somebody coming that I, that I just don't agree with, I'm going to cross over the other side of the street, look the other way, and keep on walking. It, it needs to be a desire to, to uphold the truth and, and to love those with whom we disagree. Jesus even threatens to remove the church which does not have love for sinners. And he says this, then he then says this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, what the Holy Spirit says, what God himself says to the churches. This statement ends each of the letters. We're going to hear it as we move forward uh, in this portion of God's word. In it, Jesus reminds us that we need the Holy Spirit to grant understanding and to transform us, to do that which is not natural to us. The statement points us to our need for God to work in us. Christ, our ever-gracious Lord, reminds us here is that sheer determination 
will not work the things of God in our heart. It reminds us that he will not leave us without the necessary means to growth. However, if we call upon him and upon his spirit, as we say, Lord, I repent, send your spirit that I might be more like my Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And he ends the, his words to this church and to the church throughout the ages with this promise that he, to the one who conquers, I will grant the to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. picture of the tree reminds us of the paradise lost because of sin, doesn't it? Eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yet because Christ has offered himself as that perfect sacrifice, the way is open once more for the people to come to the tree of life. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The tree among the nations that brings healing to the nations points to Christ. One commentator in speaking of the historic context of this church, which I think is helpful for us to understand this passage, says this. This would have been meaningful to the church at Ephesus, for the great temple of Diana was built on the site of an ancient tree shrine, and the image of the date palms symbolized the goddess and her city, Ephesus. The word was meant to communicate that Jesus excels Diana, for he promises access to a tree that yields endless life to those who overcome through truth expressed in love. People of God, think of this application. The all-knowing Lord Jesus Christ sees your heart. He sees your ways. He wants to continue to work in you that which would lead you to look more and more like the one whose image you bear. We are to hold the truth in love no matter what is happening around us, no matter what empire is in power. We're to ask the Lord to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, constant in prayer, to share with God's people who are in need, and to practice hospitality, and that word means love of stranger. Hospitality for those who are not necessarily a part of the family of God, but they are feeling abandoned by the world and have no place to turn. But they're looking for a community, a place where there is a unity that's real, that's lasting, that is life-giving. To the one who shows his faith to be real or her faith to be real by his or her deeds, there's access to the tree of life. Christ does not call us to hide out till the day of his coming, but he calls us to go out, to live in newness of life, calling others to faith in him, in love. Amen. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, as we consider this word, your word to us this evening, where we see ourselves in it, may we and we see the call to us in it to be discerning, to love the truth, to hold it up in front of one another. Also to do so in love. And where that is not the case, Lord, help us to have hearts that are warmed by your spirit to love. Those who are far off and yet those, there are those whom God calls from that far-off position as well, that we see as far-off. 
And he's doing so through those who are faithful. Those who regularly speak the truth in love. Help us, Lord, to repent where we have abandoned that love that we had at first. Use us, Lord, here locally and perhaps further afield as we see the kingdom coming. May we want to be in the middle of it with truth and love. Hear us for Jesus' sake.